Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. It's the first day of February, Groundhog Eve. Let's hope winter continues to be in abeyance. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. Small crew today. I'm Chris Quinn here with Laura Johnston and Courtney Astolfi. Layla and Lisa have stepped away for a day. I believe they'll both be back tomorrow. Mike DeWine's School Bus Safety Task Force has completed its work, and the big question we need to answer first is whether seatbelts will be one of the requirements or suggestions for school districts. That was the big debate, Laura, and people were very divided on it. The answer is no, it's not going to be a requirement, but it is a suggestion for school districts, some of the safety add-ons that they can think of for their buses. There are 42 states without a mandate for school buses in the country. And what this group did, and this happened after an 11-year-old died on the very first day of school in a school bus crash, the governor put together a group of 15 people to study school bus safety. And they considered the experience of Avon Lake City Schools, which Hannah Drown, our reporter, looked into, They bought two buses with seatbelts for the 2019-2020 school year, and they found all sorts of logistical hassles, including having to have a bus driver pull over on a busy road to help a student whose backpack got tangled in the belt. So they decided this was going to be an individual decision for the districts. A couple other things on the list for considering are external cameras, fully illuminated stop arms at the front and rear, crossing arms, fully illuminated school bus signs, lane departure warning systems, which are pretty standard on new cars now, all LED lights, lighted crossover mirrors, and reflective chevron. So these are some things that you could do to add some safety features to the buses. They're not cheap. It costs about $19,000 to add seatbelts, $13,000 to the other features, and that's on top of $120,000 to buy a new bus. So DeWine wants to help school districts with this. He wants to figure out how to make some money available. There's also about 16 other things on this list, including bus driver training, uh, ramping up safety, um, campaigns the whole statewide to encourage drivers to be safer because the majority of these crashes and there were like 6,000 between I believe 2016 and 2022 most of them are not caused by the buses but we have people who try to drive around school buses and don't know when you're supposed to stop so they want to up the campaign around that and also have the Ohio State Highway Patrol collaborating with the schools and the local law enforcement to develop police training on this. Come now. These are our children. We couldn't do better. I I just found this report to be so lacking in specificity and good ideas that if I were Mike DeWine, I would have said, hey, go back and try again. We're a species that has been to the moon. We've sent spacecraft beyond our galaxy, and we cannot come up with a reasonable method to protect children in school buses. Roller coasters have better guidance than we do in our school buses for all shapes and sizes. I was stunned. You really had to read this report 
dig in to find one specific thing. And it's, it's hilarious. They say, we're not mandating seatbelts, but we'll provide money for seatbelts. It's because we're really not having many ideas here. And it's all about school bus driver safety, even though we found drivers don't cause the accidents. So this really is a, a phony band-aid. It doesn't really do anything. Why can't we, as a species, come up with a way to protect children in school buses? Look, I'd like to think of this as a as a first step. This was convened after the first day of school in August. It's, you know, they turned in their report in December. We're talking about in January. This is not a long-term study. This wasn't scientific. These were people from the, from the districts. They were parents. They were people from the Ohio Department of Education. So uh, these are not the be-all, end-all. What they're telling districts to do is go do more work. So districts are supposed to audit the safety of their bus routes, their stops, and their school pickups. They're supposed to work with the police. They're supposed to have the Department of Education and Workforce expand post-crash reports to collect additional information, publish more data. So I agree with you. These are kind of lame and they're very vague, but I'm hoping this is just the beginning and the work is going to be done at a more local level where it is where you're picking up your kids and and where you're dropping them off and where the 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 problems are. And the thing is, most kids probably going to school ride a school bus. And then there's the issue of when they get on the highway and they take kids to athletic competitions. So this is not a individual, like we only have one kind of problem here. I don't know, Laura. I look at the way we protect kids in a car, which is incredible how much technology and thought has gone into the safety of children in cars. And then you look at this report, there's a divide. We should do better. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We mentioned this was likely coming a couple of days ago, and come it has. But the proposed legislation to alter Ohio's execution method contains some surprises beyond the method. Courtney, what is in the proposal? Yeah, so like you said, this legislation would allow Ohio executions to start back up using that nitrogen gas method. But, you know, kind of part and parcel in this bill, it would also make it a fourth degree misdemeanor punishable by up to a month in jail for anyone to reveal really any kind of information about anyone that's involved in the execution process. So specifically, this information includes names, addresses, phone numbers, other personal details, and it would apply to anyone who manufactures, compounds, imports, transports, distributes, prescribes, prepares the the any lethal injection drugs. And it also applies to sharing that information about anyone who participates in an execution. And kind of the way that one of the bill co-sponsors, uh, Representative Brian Stewart from Pickaway County, a Republican, he, these two issues are intertwined in his view. He thinks it's he thinks it's certainly possible that passing these new secrecy rules could solve Ohio's lethal injection drug shortage, which would then leave that nitrogen gas option as a backup that he says would only be used if an inmate requested it to be used. So they're trying, I guess, to kill kind of two birds with one stone in, in this bill. And and it's important to know that Ohio ran out of lethal injection drugs in 2018. So since then, there's been this de facto moratorium on the practice of putting inmates to death. And, you know, in recent years, Ohio struggled to obtain these drugs. You know, U.S. and European pharmaceutical companies have cut off sales here just on moral and legal grounds. So kind of the thought by these bill sponsors is that by 
shielding the folks who are involved in making those drugs. Maybe it could make them more available. (laughs) Which is ridiculous. They're not doing it because of that. They're doing it because of moral grounds. And even if they were doing it because they were afraid of the blowback, are they going to trust the state of Ohio? Who's Ohio going to have protect this information? The unemployment office? Because we know how good Ohio is at protecting your personal information. That's just a dumb move to say, well, if we shield the providers, they won't provide it. They're not providing it. They, they've said we're not going to provide this stuff if you use it to kill people. That's not why we make it. That, that, that's a kind of a red herring. I, and I get why they want to shield the names of the people that actually execute the executions because this is a hot issue. People are very angry. And, you know, what we, look at what happened to Amy Acton for, for pushing vaccines. So I think they're trying to keep people from getting unfairly targeted for doing a state job. You know, we're the transparency people. We we hate when anything becomes secret, but we do understand there are cases where secrecy might be reasonable. But it, did you say that the people who witness an execution will be protected too? They, they said the language of the bill says that it applies to those who participate in an execution. So define that as you, as you will. It, there is an issue here. You know, I, I understand, you know, wanting to keep secret, you know, the people actually pulling or, you know, pressing the button or, or whatever in that category. But we talked to Robin Maurer. She's exec director at the D.C. based Death Penalty Information Center. They don't weigh in on the death penalty itself, but they they have criticized how that penalty is carried out. And 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 Maurer told us that you know, there are laws out there in different states, um, you know, forbidding disclosure of information related to executions. Ohio had one back in 2014 that didn't really carry any penalties with it. And that that's the case, Maurer said, with these secrecy laws across the country. There's no criminal penalties associated with it, except in Arkansas, which makes it the equivalent of a first degree misdemeanor here. So if Ohio goes this route of criminalizing this, we'd be in the company of only Arkansas. At the same time, you have Republicans and Democrats that want to abolish the death penalty. It's expensive. It's irreversible for all sorts of reasons. If you're if you care about how tax money is spent, as Republicans say they do, they don't want to keep squandering money on these endless appeals that you have with death penalty cases when if you lock them up for life, you save a ton of money. And for people that worry about how many times we have falsely convicted people of murder, they spend years in prison before they get out. If we were executing them, the, the, the injustice would never be corrected. And so I don't know that they have the votes to pass this. This could be controversial enough where they don't have a veto proof majority, even if they pass it. And I suspect Mike DeWine will veto this. Right. The governor is not super keen on the death penalty. Yeah. And so this may not happen. We may not change our execution method. We may not take the steps that they're taking here. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We noted this week that the one-year anniversary of the East Palestine train wreck was bringing lots of attention, but I don't know that anyone expected this. Laura, who finally plans to visit the site? President Joe Biden. We do not know when this is going to happen, but the White House says that Biden's going to meet with residents who were affected by that February 3rd last year chemical release and assess the administration's progress in working with state and local leaders. He wants to 
really pushed to hold the railroad accountable. That's Norfolk Southern. And although, you know, this has been going on, on obviously for a year and it was big news for weeks and weeks, if not months nationally, because of the questions surrounding the safety of the environment, basically, because not only did all these chemicals leach out, they set fire be to, to try to contain them. And now there are a lot of questions. And so federal, state and local monitoring activities have determined that the air and groundwater and the drinking water are safe. Communities still really worried about this lingering po pollution. They worry about serious medical conditions that develop from the spilled chemicals. They've been to the state house. They've said there's not enough being done. Of course, ex-president Donald Trump did visit within a month of the accident. And there were a lot of criticism, especially from people like J.D. Vance, for why Biden didn't go, even though some top administration officials did show up. Yeah, I guess I remain surprised that he never showed up. And I, it just it didn't make sense. Maybe he felt like the Republicans were putting so much pressure on him that he didn't want to appear to cave. But the whole world came to East Palestine. Everybody made an appearance there. How many times did J.D. Vance go there, for crying out loud? Uh, I, I do think a presidential visit was called for, and so Biden kind of owes them a presence. We'll have to see what he says when he comes. Yeah, Sherrod Brown, the U.S. senator, went eight times. I'm not sure how many times J.D. Vance went, but now they've got something to talk about in, that Vance and Brown have in common, actually, trying to get this bipartisan Railroad Safety Act passed. It's been a year. It really hasn't go gone anywhere. Brown is saying they put profits over people and he's not giving up. So we actually have a story coming from Sabrina Eaton looking at why that hasn't gone anywhere. Uh, the U.S. Department of Justice is also suing Norfolk Southern, seeking penalties under the Clean Water Act. They are on the hook for millions and millions of dollars for this cleanup so that taxpayers don't have to pay for that. And the Railway Safety Act would increase all sorts of safety measures like car, rail car inspections, uh, safety requirements for trains carrying hazardous materials. They have to give state emergency response officials advance notice of the materials they're transporting, um, all sorts of things that we haven't seen yet. Yeah, let's hope Sabrina names names of the specific people in Congress that are blocking that bill, the ones that are most in the pockets of the railroad lobby, because they should be ashamed of themselves for standing in the way of basic common sense. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Let's stick with East Palestine for a minute. A reporter who was arrested during a Mike DeWine press conference about the derailment has settled his lawsuit with those responsible for that false arrest. Courtney, what's he getting? Yeah, we're talking about News Nation reporter Evan Lambert. He sued the city, Columbiana County, and the National Guard. The National Guard case is still ongoing, but he did settle, settle with the other two, and he's getting $80,000 plus attorney fees here for this arrest that pretty much everyone who wasn't involved backed away from the moment that it happened. Like, DeWine condemned it after the press conference, and Dave Yost dropped charges that, that were slapped on Lambert after this arrest. And this settlement kind of shows, you know, it puts a spotlight on how egregious this arrest was, said Katie Townsend. She's the legal director for the Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press. And she hopes the Lambert case serves as a reminder to Ohio law enforcement that reporters have to be free to do their jobs without, you know, risking official retaliation. So how this all went down at that February 8th press conference, he, Lambert was broadcasting live. He went live during the press conference that happens for big national news stories, you know, and and a National Guard member, you know, told him to stop broadcasting, screamed at him. And then the sheriff got involved, threatened to jail him. And 
He was shoved out in the hallway by police, arrested, and jailed five hours. Yeah, this was so beyond what is normal, and it just shows the overreach that law enforcement can get when they're full of themselves. The sad thing is, is the only result of this is taxpayers have to pay some money to for the bad behavior of those they employ and the law enforcement officers who commit the misdeeds almost always walk like those guys should all have been punished and suspended because they violated someone's civil rights but the only real result now is the taxpayers pay up cleveland knows this how many times have the taxpayers paid up for the misbehavior of cleveland officers but at least at least there's all agreement that this shouldn't have happened. The reporter was doing his job and this was abuse by law enforcement that could not be accepted. Yeah, he he was charged with resisting arrest. I mean, everyone saw a video later that showed he wasn't resisting arrest here. It it makes me think that, you know, small t- the, the big national press coming in for a big event like this, it can be overwhelming. There's a lot of activity going on when all the big national names are in town for a big event and just makes you wonder these local folks i don't know if if they're if they're not working with too many local reporters day in and day out maybe it's easy to ignore or or feel like you can you can do these kinds of things to the press if you're not really used to dealing with them too much in your day-to-day mother you're not supposed to shoot anybody like this you're supposed Uh, to respect the civil rights of everybody you deal with and what this is a sign to me is this is law enforcement agencies that are out of control and no longer recognize what their job is, which is service to the community that pays their salaries. You're listening to Today in Ohio. A bunch of campaign finance reports were due this week, and one of the most interesting comes from the group behind a proposed November ballot question that would fix gerrymandering in Ohio. Or how much has the group received and where's that cash coming from? So the group is called Citizens Not Politicians, and they raised more than $3 million last year, much of it from the same groups that bankrolled the campaigns against Issue 1 in August and then for Issue 1 in November to guarantee Ohioans' right to abortion. There's six groups that gave nearly identical amounts of money. There's two liberal dark money groups based in Washington, D.C. That's the 1630 Fund and Article 4. They each gave $550,000. Four more left-leaning groups, the National ACLU, the Ohio Progressive Collaboratives, the Ohio Education Association, and the American Federation of Teachers gave $500,000. There's also about $13,000 in smaller contributions from 117 different people. They spent about a million point three dollars last year And a lot of that was to Advanced Micro-Targeting Incorporated, trying to gather the signatures needed for these ballot initiatives. They have to collect 413 ballot, sorry, 413,487 ballot signatures from 44 of Ohio's 88 counties by July 3rd. The nation can see that the incredibly sinister behavior of Ohio's Republican elected leaders has created an imbalance. We don't have fair representation in Congress of Ohio. It's slanted because these guys monstrously defied the voters in the Constitution and they continue to gerrymander. So I'm not surprised people from outside Ohio are taking an interest in this because it affects the national picture. They're aware of Matt Huffman. They're aware of Mike DeWine. They know they did not do what they were supposed to do this last time around, even though the voters were clear about what they wanted. So we're going back to fix it again to finally stop them from cheating the way they have cheated. 
I, I were you surprised at all by the the teachers and the education foundation? No, because it's, everything's out of whack. We're not. Yeah, we I have agree. no represent. We are all people who are, have taxation without representation. the The Ohio legislature doesn't represent Ohio. It represents a fringe group of of right wing nut jobs who have cheated the whole process. We all know it. Ohio is a centrist state. We are not what these guys pretend to be with all their craziness. So I'm not surprised. Regular Ohioans, the, the large group of independents in the middle, don't want Matt Huffman, don't want Jason Stevens. They want to go back to a day of the Bob Taps and the John Glenns and the George Voinoviches. These are not the extremists we want leading Ohio. And this group that led by the former Supreme Court justice is trying to fix it. And people from outside Ohio are saying, yes, Ohio, we need you to be honest and play the role. It's important, important stuff. And I'm glad they're getting the funding because we have to stop people like Huffman from continuing to destroy what Ohio stands for. There, there's also a lot of money coming in in the governor hopefuls. Who's leading in the fundraising there? I bet you wouldn't guess. It's John Husted. He's got $3.3 million in his campaign bank account after raising $1.7 million last year. That might be some kind of record. And remember, we are quite a bit out from a governor's race. Uh, State Treasurer Robert Sprague has about $1.9 million in the bank, raised $292,000 last year. That includes nearly a million dollars he loaned himself. So that. Whether or not he's going to spend it, that's a question. Dave Yost, the attorney general, raised about $670,000, more among the most of any statewide elected official. His campaign bank account contains almost $1.2 million. So if you said had 13 people who maxed out or got near the maximum and uh, probably reads like a who's who of the, the business people in Ohio who are making a whole lot of money, but he's, uh, he's very clear on his ambition. The business interests are going to favor Houston, but this one is hard to predict. You also have Bob Sprague, the treasurer, who's put a bunch of his own money in. But the likability factor is key in Ohio. Mike DeWine won by a gigantic percentage last time because Ohioans like Mike DeWine. He he's, feels like one of them. He's the old-style uh, Republican, even though he didn't do his job in gerrymandering. Um, and will Houston pass that likability factor? I don't know. Would Dave Yost pass the likability factor? I don't know. He came out in support of Bernie Moreno this week. So I think that's a big mark against his likability for the center of Ohio. Uh, and, and who knows who might else get in? Like you said, it's very, very early. The one thing that is clear to me is that this will be decided in the Republican primary because the Democrats have no bench. There is no Democratic candidate on the horizon that is going to challenge these guys. That's the, the pathetic state of the Democratic Party in the state of Ohio. Like, but it is years out. We, I mean, they have a little bit of time if they can get something Who? together. Who? I, I don't know. Maybe they can go back to, I mean, they're probably not going to go back to Nan Whaley, but uh, the former Cincinnati mayor, maybe they'll be like, oh, you, you were who we should have chosen last yeah, time. I don't know. I don't think any of the young mayors like Justin Bibb are going to get in then. They're, they're too smart. They know that they'd just be sacrificial lambs for a party that has completely lost its way. Yeah. But, and these Republicans are very well known yeah, going in. Yeah. I, I really 
really, this is coming down to the primary. That's why we should have open primaries. Everybody should have a say. You got two years to get that done, Chris. I'm working on it. You're <laughs> listening to Today in Ohio. We did have another interesting finance report. It comes from a Larry Householder's campaign. Yes, I'm talking about the guy who is serving a lengthy term in prison for masterminding the biggest bribery scheme in Ohio history. How, I'm sure you are wondering, can he be spending campaign money on anything? Courtney, what's the answer? Yeah, so his his campaign spent down about $112,000 last year while he was in prison. And and that money is going to Scott Pollins, an attorney, a Republican operative who's a, you know, a legal and political advisor to householder on and off over the years. And Pollins told us the money covers his work representing householder in multiple Ohio elections commission cases filed against him. And they kind of those cases kind of align with the criminal charges, but it's a separate process through which they're, you know, adjudicated just for campaign issues through the Ohio Elections Commission. And so so we've got kind of a it sounds like a questionable use of the money here. The Ohio Elections Commission has long held that political campaigns can't use campaign money to fund their criminal defense attorneys but they can use their money to defend themselves in election-related cases that are considered by the OEC. So Householder has two cases before the OEC, and one of, you know, they, they kind of roughly track, like I said, with, with his criminal issues, except his racketeering charge and, and what he was convicted on and sent to prison for, there was no finding on any possible campaign violations here. So Householder and Poland's believe Householder didn't violate any campaign finance rules, and they think they'll win their cases before the OEC. Poland is hoping to convince the OEC that Ohio law allows for kind of a, a looser approach to campaign spending on criminal defenses. And, and they're arguing that a public official or a candidate should be allowed to use campaign money to cover their legal defense for accusations that connect with their official, you know, duties yeah. such as bribery. That's preposterous. And I'm betting there's First Energy money in his campaign account. So First Energy would be continuing to support Larry Householder in his incredibly corrupt scheme. Might not be, but I'm betting. You're listening to Today in Ohio. All right, Laura, I did the math. 7.7 billion days works out to 2.1 million years. If you traveled 7.7 billion miles, you could fly to the moon and back more than 16,000 times. Why is the number 7.7 billion pertinent to Ohio in 2023? I love that this is what you did. You calculated all these things That's out. That's a big number, man. It's a, it's a really big number. It's how much Ohioans gambled on sports last year, which for the first year ever was legal. Little caveat here. If you had $100 and you won $100 and then you bet the $100 again, it counts as more, you know, it counts as double. So it's not, it, it can be some of the same money, but this is what we're wagering. And that made $935 million in revenue for the online and in-person betting operations. But remember how big of a deal it was about who was going to get a sports book, where they were going to put it, what it was going to look like. Like Ohioans don't care about these physical sports books. They are betting online on the apps. That is the vast majority. So, <coughs> excuse me, the vast majority of bets got were FanDuel and DraftKings and um, big numbers. When, when you think about the entertainment dollar, which is what 
people who gamble will often say, this is my entertainment money. This has been an enormous boost to Ohio's entertainment spending. It's so hard to comprehend $7.7 billion flying across these sports books. It's just so lucrative. And people wondered whether how much Ohioans really wanted to venture into sports betting. Yeah, obviously, they were really a huge uh, market just ready to tap. Yeah, when we talk about that, you could fund Cuyahoga County's budget like five times-ish. Courtney could correct me on that. But I mean, for, for years, you could fund city yeah. and county budgets here. It's so much money. And people are just doing it on their phones. They're, they're watching the games and they're doing parlays for a couple of bucks. And I think what I've been told, and I have never... I have not done sports betting is that it makes you invested in the game. It makes you care about the game. And so every game is just more of a big deal and that Super Bowl feel and you enjoy it more. We've, we're going to see, I'm sure though, at some point, the real ramifications of gambling addiction and how it's wrecking some more lives than it was wrecking before it all became legal. Such a big number. Yet, yet the regular gambling is still up too. We just had a story post this morning that we broke our, I think, 10th record in 11 years for yearly gambling. So this is big. I mean, yes, it's big money. It's big business. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Who doesn't love the village of Peninsula, a gateway to Cuyahoga Valley National Park? But as we reported a couple of years back, the village future was imperiled by very leaky septic systems in a bunch of yards and no money to fix them. Courtney, what's the good news for Peninsula and for everybody who cares about the the Cuyahoga River? Yeah, this seems like quite a development on, on this story. On Monday, Summit County Council approved legislation that that County Executive Eileen Shapiro put forth that's going to make the village part of the Summit County Metropolitan Sewer District. So this issue they've had not having, you know, municipal sewer, they're going to now be folded into the county system. And the county's going to spend seven and a half million dollars in Federal American Rescue Plan Act money to extend the sewer lines into Peninsula Homes and Businesses and create a, a treatment plant there. And this is on a semi-quick timeline. Design work is going to start this year. The system's expected to be up and running by January 2026. And like you said, that means there's an end in sight for the village's E. coli program. Uh, e. coli problem. It's E. coli's been leaking into the river now, and there really hasn't been a solution because of the small nature of, of the village that we're talking about. It's just 550 people who are in Peninsula. And the village council sees wisdom in this approach, too. They voted unanimously as well to ask to be added into the county sewer district. Yeah, it's this is a, a wonderful solution. And for people who are not leaking, they still have the option of joining this and getting out of their septic systems if they want, although they'd have to start paying a sewer bill. Yeah, and they can keep their septic systems if they want if, if there isn't leaching there. You're listening to Today in Ohio. That's it for Thursday. Come back on Friday, Groundhog Day, and we will wrap up a week of news. We actually have a reporter in Punxsutawney who will be up all night tonight for the festivities because this is not just a rat that comes out and finds its shadow. It's a whole night of partying, kind of like what you saw in the Bill Murray movie. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Courtney. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. We'll be back Friday. Friday.